to, to work on my brand, I'm like, I don't know. I know I don't want to stay here forever. I want to do something else. And most of my time in my career was dedicated to networking and acquiring customers versus networking with my peers or other opportunities. So it was one of those things where I'm like, I kind of woke up and I'm like, I'm not going to be here forever. You know, my numbers are going up in terms of performance expectations, but the amount I'm getting paid is going down. This isn't a great story. I've been through it before and just started paving the way for the future, man. Welcome to Decision Point, a podcast about overcoming adversity in sales and the growth that we experience in the process. I'm Brad Siemens. Joining Brad on this episode of Decision Point is Ryan Staley, founder and CEO of WellBoss, as well as a podcast host of Sales and Marketing Built Freedom. Ryan helps founders and revenue leaders implement a seven to eight figure sales system in about three months based on principles that he found through lots of hard work and dedication. To learn more about Ryan and WellBoss, head over to www.ryanstaley.io for more tips, hacks, and strategies. Enjoy today's episode. So I'd love to know if you just, just tell me this, tell me the story. How'd you get to the whale boss? Yeah, man, I'll, I'll get into the, the superhero origin story. Cause that's, that's what I always like to, to call it like I'm, on my podcast. Cause everybody has one and it's, it's totally different. So in, in terms of going back, I guess something that's relative for, for folks that are in your audience is like my first real sales job was an inside sales position, right? So I had a, make 250 dials a day, just smash the phone button, really didn't use email much and just smile and dial. Uh, and basically was selling high level training to CIOs and CTOs of investment banks and brokerages. So like Merrill Lynch, JP Morgan, uh, and companies like that, where I had to get through the admins, I had to find a way to get to the global CTO and then basically close them like it was boiler room, you know, close them within couple minutes or 24 hours or less. So that was a character building job, but uh, a lot of great things came from it. So now did you have, just out of curiosity, was that the Marcus Evans yes. position? So, yeah. so what were you guys, so what was the, the, it was a training product? Oh dude, that, that company was really interesting. Cause like it was one of the, it was the first job out of college. So my, my job, like, you know, you know how you don't know what you don't know? Yeah. Like, to an utmost extreme. So I was like 21, 22 at the time. And it was a job where I got paid $1,500 a month and plus commission, but that was a draw, right? right? So, but I'm just like, oh, this is the way the world is, right? But yeah, it was basically like selling round table discussions on cutting edge technology. I'm like XML for straight through processing was one of the big, the big things that they focused on there that I, I was involved with online banking and brokerage. So just stuff like that, man. Now, did they did they recruit you out of school? Did you get a recruiter on campus? Is that how you end up? No, I just started looking and, and applied to jobs. I, I wanted to get into marketing or sales. And I love the concept of sales being, you know, really, really performance-based. Because I, I had a sales job in college where I sold Yellow Page advertising door-to-door, which was another character-building job, right? And I did really well with that. And so my eyes were open to marketing and sales, found this job. And then from there, I went into an outside sales position, then later in a leadership position. So like half my career was in, was basically sales, mostly complex sales. And then I moved into a leadership position for about nine and a half years. 
grew an enterprise sales team from zero to 30 million and annual reoccurring revenue with only four sales reps and no marketing department or SDR department. And then once from there, basically you're talking about, you know, I know you talk a lot about the Metzl game. I was just kind of tired working for someone else my entire career. And it got to the point where, you know, probably for the last couple of years of my job, I just, I just wasn't feeling it anymore. Right. We were closing massive deals. It was super exciting, but eventually got to the point where I wanted something more. And, you know, I started working on my brand, started working on other things. Team was still doing well. And then, you know, the, the CEO told me he wasn't too happy about me working on my brand and other stuff in the middle of COVID. And then they told me, you know, at the peak of COVID that I, I didn't need to work there anymore. So that was, yeah. So the right, this was like March 31st of 2020. So from there, I started my own company, started talking. To so that's like about, weeks before, is that right before the, so what day was that? March 31st. So this Okay, is so like, that'd have been a couple weeks. What the, the week of the 9th or the 10th was like the shutdown, right? Yeah, man. It was it was uh yeah, shut down two weeks before. And you know, it was one of those situations a CEO took zero pay, they basically furloughed 75% of the, the company. And you know, first he's like, Well, you you're gonna have to basically commit to not doing anything, you know, with your your own side business or whatever, even though I communicated in advance, that was, that was my plan. Right. They, they were fine with it because I was still fully dedicated. But then the next day they came back and like, Hey, we had an investor meeting and you can't work here anymore. And so, so that was like, that was a moment that really accelerated, but it was really hard at the time because of all the uncertainty involved. However, it, it was one of the best possible things in my life that could have happened to me because it got me started down this path. Now, what's go so do you, is, so we got a, a friend of the podcast who's been on Rob Bell. He says, you know, you can't connect the dots in the, he says you can only connect the dots in the rearview mirror. So are you far enough out of that that you can tell, okay, that was, that was good. That was a good thing that happened to you because it accelerated you? Yeah. Well, I, so Brad, I always knew it was a good thing. Like when it happened, it's just, you know, that was the peak where like you look at your investments, for example, and your investments, like the stock market dropped like 40% in like a couple of weeks. Right. So that's a bit of an oh shit moment where you're like, okay, what's going on here? However, I kept telling myself, I'm like, Hey, this is going to be a hell of a redemption story, you know, where I started a business and, you know, grew it from scratch during this period. So it was something that kept me motivated and kind of like, looking forward with what's possible. Like, I don't know if you've read the book, Man's Search for Meaning. Yep. Um, I, haven't actually I, I, have, I have not, but I have not read it. I'm familiar with it. It's the second time in probably four episodes it's been brought up. So, what is her? Kendra Warlow brought it up oh, okay, uh, four cool. weeks ago. Yeah. So she, I know it was important in her journey. Yeah. And so, I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about it. I haven't read it, but like the core concept of that book from what I understand is it's based on like, everything's based on the meaning you give it. Like facts don't really matter. And so that's, that's kind of like how I look at it. And I'm finally kind of out of the muck, I would say, you know, cause the first four five, six months, I was figuring out exactly what I wanted to do. And then I started talking with CEOs just through my network. And they're like, dude, you grew your business from zero to 30 million in annual reoccurring revenue in like five years five and a half years with four salespeople. Like, I, I want to know how to do that. 
<laughs> yeah. So tell, so tell, so tell me about that. Cause that's, cause that is interesting. What were you guys selling at flex? It was uh, managed services for companies, print environments. So it was literally one of the least sexiest things you could possibly sell. It was, yeah. So basically we would, we would sell large outsourcing agreements and compete with like HP or Lexmark. And so on the, on the print side. Yeah. Okay. So like, what would a contract, so what would it, when you, when you, I always think print, I always think like sales material, but it's not necessarily that it could be bank. I mean, it could be like bank printouts and all kinds of, like what would be a client example? So, yeah, like for example, one of the best clients we got that I'm most proud of is, is we got cold an agreement with Amazon Whole Foods, right? And so, you know, we're talking over a half million plus a month in, in annual reoccurring revenue. And it's to man, it was to manage the entire fleet of, of all their stores, of all the devices in their stores. They printed out like signs and tags and, okay. and, and stuff like that. Gotcha. So if I go, so if I, so Whole Foods, so if I go in, anything I see in print potentially was coming out of your facility? Most of it, yeah. Okay. Well, no, it wasn't coming out. It was just managing. Managed by you. Okay. And, and I, I mean, I can't speak for that now, right? Because that's, I'm not, I haven't been there for over a year, you know, but, but that that's like an example of, of how you would uh, support people. So, so yeah, man. So basically what we did, the, the way that you asked the question, like, how do we do that? Which is always like the number one question is like, okay, how do you do this? Right. And what I would tell you is like the number one thing we did, and this is what I help companies with is, is kind of what I call whale scaling. Right. So inadvertently, like I designed a whole go to market strategy. And one of the things that, that I did intuitively, just because I was getting pushed to like constantly perform at a higher level with my team, which we had no team when we started, there was no reps, they were inexperienced, no B2B sales experience. And so that journey, how that happened was like, you know, for example, we might start off with, with deal sizes that were $10,000 a month or $20,000 a month, right? Well, what we would constantly do is keep refining and optimizing. And so those $20,000 deals would then, you know, we'd start getting deals that were $40,000 a month. Then they were $100,000 a month. Then they were $300,000 a month. Then they were $600,000 a month. So essentially what happened with that is, you know, through, through looking at that, and I don't know if you know this, but that's kind of one of the key strategies that Snowflake uses, which has had the largest IPO in SaaS history, is they have like a 50 and 50 model where they look at their 50 biggest deals and their 50 fastest deals continuously and then refine through that. So that that's how we did that. And then at the same time, like, I'm not, I mean, like Medic, for example, or MedPick is one of the most like dominant frameworks that people use for larger deal sizes. And that was created in 1997. So like, imagine how much the world has changed in 97. Yeah. And so intuitively, I just kept refining what worked and what didn't, and then created my own selling methodology, all the way from the strategy, the process and the execution, which is what yielded those results. And I kept looking at what we were doing right, what we were doing wrong. And, you know, my team did an awesome job. They worked their butts off too. Now is in a, in managed print are the mar, is it are the margins tight and is it highly competitive? Oh yeah. It's it's viewed as a commodity but we sold it as a solution. So I mean you could go and buy pretty much you could self assemble a solution 
in a commodity manner, but because we, we sold it with a lot of value and packaged it the right way, we were able to sell it as a managed service. Gotcha. And then did you have, and it looked like you had some, you know, big company experience. What did you like better working kind of small business or like small to mid-sized business or fortune, you know, kind of fortune 1000? Well, I started off, Brad, working, you know, as a rep and a smaller mid-market and then moved up market. And then I, I did the same thing with my team. You know, we had to stabilize the office because nothing was happening even on the mid-market side. So started there and then jumped over and went full-time on the enterprise team. So so did you have, so you're saying, hey, you've always kind of worked up from from the ground, kind of ground up? Yeah, I mean, like that's the thing. I never worked for like an Oracle or an SAP or a company with massive infrastructure. It was always like companies that were newer to the market where the comp was highly leveraged and it was a performance-based environment. Okay. Cause I, cause so like when I think about Pitney Bowes, cause you were at Pitney Bowes for a while, I always think about them as being a really large company. Do you think about, is that cause they were in the managed services piece that you sort of, they're kind of a subset? Yeah, so Pitney Bowes acquired the company that I worked oh, for. Oh, okay. That, yeah. Well, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I didn't start working for them. They were, they, oh, they okay. Well, that makes, that, that totally makes sense. So Pitney Bowes, by the, okay. So yeah, so you'd always been at the, well, that makes sense. Okay. Interesting. Super fascinating. So then you're, you weren't even there. They change the logos on you <laughs> <laughs> basically yeah i mean i was at well i was at pity boats for maybe like a year and a half but i was with the prior company for maybe like four years so four years okay well that uh, makes sense i guess i totally forgot about that that like you could have acquisitions and then linkedin changes the oh yeah they just changes change the logos logo. on you. so you, you know. can't that's super that's super funny well one of the things i want you highlighted that i want to talk about is you know i do think sales so you mentioned brand i think sales is changing we're starting to kind of see this emergence of the, I'm going to call it the the marketing sales rep. So the sales rep that's on LinkedIn, they're using content, they're maybe using some of their early, you know, some of their more millennial skills to to drive drive demand. You had picked up kind of what you mentioned that you were working on your brand. What made you decide like, hey, I, I should be, like, tell me that process. Like you're working somewhere, you're creating a brand. At some point, there's kind of, it sounded like there's some conflict between your brand and the company's brand. Walk me through that process. Like, I guess the first question would be, what made you feel like starting to build your brand was important? Like what was going through your mind? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great question, Brad. And, it, you know, one of the things was like, I, I ran into the situation where I was like, okay, like, I know I don't want to do this forever. Like, I don't want my boss's job and I don't want the CEO's job, right? And I tried to innovate and be like an entrepreneur first. And there was different things that I tried to do to, to, to roll out or accomplish. And I kept getting stonewalled half the time, you know? And a big reason was, you know, and, and there's, there's good investors and there's bad investors, man. And the investor guys were great. But I went through multiple PE cycles as you know, throughout my career. And at the end of the day, you know, they both kind of sucked halfway through because what would happen is a lot of times the, the senior management team would get eliminated, right? Or they would swap people out. They would bring in people that had great resumes that often didn't have experience working at a company of that size. And then they would shave down margins as much as possible in, in ways of comp or ways of other areas. So it made it harder and harder to hit your number. So this was a trend that happened multiple times. And I'm like, all right, 
to, to work on my brand, I'm like, I don't know. I know I don't want to stay here forever. I want to do something else. And most of my time in my career was dedicated to networking and acquiring customers versus networking with my peers or other opportunities. So it was one of those things where I'm like, I kind of woke up and I'm like, I'm not going to be here forever. You know, my numbers are going up in terms of performance expectations, but the amount I'm getting paid is going down. This isn't a great story. I've been through it before and just started paving the way for the future, man. Uh, that's, that's, that's awesome. So how long, what I find fascinating is that, you know, you think, I mean, you sort of nailed it. So I don't find this, but you know, I think I heard Jeff Bezos say one time when the, when the CFO becomes the CEO, you're in trouble. And that happens <laughs> in a lot of PE situations, right? Is that you have heavily financed minded and, and it, yeah. Yeah. It, it, the way I look at it is, and this is a key criteria for anyone listening is if you're going to take a position and you're not the founder, you're not the CEO, you're a revenue leader, or you are a rep, always understand, is your CEO an operations-based CEO or are they a sales-minded CEO? They usually fit in one of those two buckets. And, or like when I say operations, that's like product, you know, a technical CTO or CEO. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just usually they have different views on sales and outlooks on that. So yeah, no, fast, uh, super fascinating. What, so what do you, what are some of the things that, you know, if you have an operational CEO or you got a product minded CEO, you're a sales guy, you're working for one, what, what would you say some of the down, what, what are the advantages and disadvantages to, to both of those? Yeah. I mean, well, you probably your processes are going to be tighter or your processes are going to be aligned better. And this is just based on my experience, right? If, if a sales minded CEO gets a great who, then, then that's, not going to be the situation. However, what typically happens is if people start performing at a really high level and they're working for an operations CEO or a product-based CEO, a lot of times they'll say, okay, well, mm, like there's some people making a lot of money here and that's, that's like too much money they're making. So, you know, we need to adjust the comp plan. And, you know, and so th th I've seen situations like that happen so many times, Brad. So I would say that's, that's kind of one of the big ones. Which I think is hilarious, which I think is really funny because you don't have that revenue if you don't have salespeople. But the product's so good, it sells itself, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> like, tell me how many times you don't hear that, right? Yeah. And I'm not bagging on them. Like, I know some great, you know, operations-minded CEOs. But, like, the other thing that I've seen is, like, there's a lot more barriers to getting big deals done where you have to be incredibly nimble and flexible. And a lot of times, if it doesn't fit in the box... They don't want to do it. So, so that's just word of caution. It's not like that in every situation. It's just something to, to keep your, your radar up on. Yeah. That's, I think that's, I think that's interesting. Just the, you know, how now do you run? So, so talk to me about, you know, a large day. So you mentioned, you know, Hey, you got to get creative. So, you know, have you ever seen a large deal kind of go awry because you got too creative? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, if you go too far outside your core competency, yeah, it's going to crash and burn because you can't execute and you'll see people that you'll, you'll try and do stuff that <clears throat> competitors are doing, right? <clears throat> In terms of too creative, I wouldn't say that more only, only if it, it brushes with the areas of like you, you can't execute, like it's so far outside of what you do and you're promising error, which we never really did that. I think one time I saw there was a big deal. We were working with a fortune 10 company. And, you know, this is one of the things that I've learned too, is that sometimes customers are, are 
too big where you don't want them, right? They could they could have two million dollars in monthly reoccurring revenue, and you know the margins suck, right? Yep. And they 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 want to blow through all your resources. So like I, there's a situation where we're working a deal like that, and there's a big part of what they wanted us to do in the RFP. And we tried to align with that instead of backing out of the RFP, which I tried to do, but executive team didn't want to, because I'm like, this is outside of our core competency. And like, we're not built to win in this situation. So we had to leverage an outsourcer to do it, which if you're dealing with a deal size of that magnitude, there's no way you're going to be competitively priced. Yeah. Well, I think sales and business, I mean, you really have, it's kind of a dichotomy. It's almost like I, it's always good to diversify, except for when it's not. Like you don't know when the you don't know when those situations are, right? And you know, if you diversify too much and it doesn't work out, then all of a sudden it was a bad idea, right? But you don't know when the you don't like take Amazon for example. Amazon's super diversified, right? They've got multiple lines of business. You know, if 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 they had just stuck to their core competency, they'd be selling books. Exactly. And so it's always so I always say it's always good to diversify, except for when it's not. And unfortunately, you don't know when that is. And you got to make you got to make good decisions, you know, and, and look at you know what you're good at and your resources. But I think that's business and that's sales, right? Like you just have to know you got to be able to draw the line. Um, well, a lot of what I hear is like, I mean, you could people try when people try and diversify too early. I think is when they they crash, right? Like you should be able to get over a million in, in revenue, a couple million plus without having, you know, four or five product lines. Like Apple, I think during when Steve Jobs was there, you know, the first thing he did when, when Apple was in their death spiral is I think they had 300 products and he reduced it down to 10, all the way down to 10 products. And that started the recovery. Eventually they were the first 30 billion with a B, $30 billion company. And I think they had 30 products total. That's it. Maybe it was even 10. It might've been 10 on that too. I just read the, uh, the Innovation Secrets of Steve Jobs. It was an amazing book. Highly recommend it. But um, really, really insightful about some things like that in terms of focus. Because he's like, you could have your A team on your top products. Like he, he did kind of a, a four product matrix, right? He did you know, business and then, you know, personal. And he did, he did like a desktop and then he did like a portable. That was all he focused on. He's like, Hey, if we cut down the number of products massively, we could have our A team on the best products. We can come out with a new version every nine months versus every 18 months and just yielded awesome results for him. Yeah. I, I, it's like, you know, that's, in, it's interesting. So where do you feel like, yeah, I think the difference in diversification really comes around is like, are you diversifying because you're trying to be everything to everybody or are you diversifying because it's part of a, you know, a progression? It's naturally progressive to do that. Yeah. I mean, eventually if you take really good care of your customers, you're going to want to have different products. Yeah, you're going to want to have different products. Yep. hundred percent. You know what I mean? Yep. So, I mean, Palantir, which is like, you got a $40 billion valuation. They have, I think they're doing, I don't remember how much revenue they're doing, but they have, you know, basically 66% of the revenue from their top 10 customers, top 20 customers. I think Palantir is really interesting. It's super interesting. It's like, yeah. cause it's still, it's like big and stealthy and nobody really knows anything about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
It's so well, well, awesome. What you know? What's the one thing that you're kind of the most passionate about right now? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things, man. Like in business, I think the market is completely misguided. Founders, especially, that they think VC money is the only way that they could survive and grow. And I think it's it's a massive disservice because I mean, I've heard so many horror stories. Like I said, not all investors are bad, but I'm really passionate that like. If you can't turn one dollar into ten dollars, how are you going to turn a million into ten million, right? And and so like everybody's like, you got to get funding, you got to get funding. And so these four founders are brainwashed into thinking that's the only solution to getting them to scale their company. Whereas if they invested that time and energy into growing, as opposed to just chasing investors, because the average cycle is like eighteen months to get investment, then they could grow because Brad. 97% of companies that have seed money don't make it to the next round of funding. 97%. So what happens to them if they don't raise the money? Do they go out of business or they just, they get stuck at the, they get stuck in a down, like a down round scenario? A lot of times they don't, they go out of business, man. They go out of business. I mean, they just you, run look at, out of- you look at the numbers, it's staggering, like how, how bad it is, like in terms of just the conversion rates of investments. And I, and I know those investors are, are risking their money. So I get that. However, like, you know, basically what happens is like people create their own company and you founded three companies. You, you know what it's like, or you, you've yep. you know, helped yep. three companies, right? Like you create a company because you want to be the king or you want to be the queen. And so what happens is like you have that mindset, you want to work for someone else. And then you get investors and you go from being a king or a queen to a pawn. And a lot of times those CEOs get fa- fired, you know, after years, after a couple of years, like, there's one CEO I know that he went through a venture cycle and he got, he's, he got, they celebrated him after three years because he was the longest CEO that ever made it for that fund. Three years. Well, I think a big mistake people make is, you know, they, they're, look, there are winner take all markets for sure. But I, I think a lot of times people, most markets aren't. Yeah. Most markets aren't, aren't winner take all markets. Now, Sometimes it's hard to tell which ones are going to be, you know, winner take all. But, you know, I think that most markets are not winner take all markets. And if you take something too, if you do something excellent over a long period of time, then you look like Chick-fil-A. And, you know, they're, they're, they've, they've got their own little moat around their, around their business. And they sell chicken sandwich for goodness sakes. I mean, it's, it's, it's a freaking chicken sandwich. That's your, I love that analogy. That's great. The chicken sandwich moat, we'll call it. The chicken sandwich. My wife's convinced that they have something in the food, but but yeah, it's definitely you know the three lines wrapped around the building. I mean, everywhere you go. I mean, I've never seen I've never seen a Chick Fil A that isn't you know isn't chaos. And I, I think part. Of, I mean, I this is my personal belief on Chick Fil A because I I do like what they've built. You know, the big difference between Chick Fil A and McDonald's is that you know Chick Fil A is a like a springboard. For all their employees, most of the guys working at Chick Fil A are not trying to work there for their whole lives. Right. right. I do think that makes yeah. a big difference. Yeah, I could totally see that. That makes yeah. sense. It's great advancement opportunities. Yeah, it's a it's concerned. And obviously, they got full time employees, but I think a lot of it is about advancement. So, what about personal? So you said so you're you're as passionate. Which, by the way, I think is a great thing. I think it's there is a lot of a lot of these CEOs think you have to raise money. I think you bring up a really good point. That just growing, you know, growing your business. I think a lot of that's driven out of fear, right? Some of it, I'll tell you, you know, software is expensive. 
So that makes it, you know, I think that can make it challenging. And so you're competing with, you're competing with trying to pay salaries, which can be hard. But in most cases, I think, you know, most problems are people problems, not money problems. Not all of them. Sometimes you have money problems, but a lot of times you throw money at people problems instead of people at people problems. So I think that's, I think that's awesome. And then what about personally? What's, what's the one thing personal? You sound like you maybe had multiple, you're multiple, multi-passionate. Yeah, man. I, I mean, I, I love family and I love growth. Like those are, you know, growth and experiences. So, you know, like, and what I mean by that are adventures, you know, like I went surfing with my family in Maui three years ago and my kids, you know, tried it when they were, I don't know, really little, you know, they're eight and five and stuff like that, I think is cool. Like I, we were talking a little bit before the show, but like I made the the, the world finals for fantasy football one year. That was, that was cool. Cause I got to catch passes from like Joe Montana and Dan Marino there and met them, you know? So like, I like adventures like that and then personal growth. And like, I really like holistically, I don't know if it was a midlife crisis or what, but that's what edged me to get out of the corporate and just try and serve and help people that are struggling. And, and that's why it crosses over into like some of the other stuff we talked about with like, founders wanting to grow their business and that's their dream. Like, I think that's so cool to help someone be able to realize that and just be a part of that, you know? So I, I would say that, man, I, I know I hit on a lot of different areas. I had a family. No, this is great. This is great. This is what that, we covered. We covered a lot of stuff. I, I loved it. Yeah, man. So that's, that, that's what I would say. That's, that's what I enjoy the most. And you know, life is my life totally changed about six years ago when I kind of rebuilt myself from the inside out. And I think, it's never too late to do that, no matter how old you are or what you do, so that you could try and look at and enjoy life at a completely different level. Now, is that, was that, a, did you have an experience or you just got to, was that kind of age, was that like experience driven or age driven? Like, did you get to a certain age where you're like, hey, you reevaluated or did you have like a life situation? Yeah, man, it was, it was both, you know, I mean, you start getting older and you're like, this is like, if you do really well you're making good money. You have the things you're like, is this all there is? Right. And then, you know, at one point I was working so hard and in working so much and in, in investing all my time and all my energy into business that my personal relationship started to melt down. You know, I wasn't around my family much, wasn't around my kids much. And I, to be perfectly frank, like I wasn't enjoying life that much. It kind of sucked. You know, it was just like a, grind where I was grinding myself into nothing, you know, while, while I was working for someone else as hard as I can and didn't even have loyalty from them. So I'm like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? And so that's, that's a big part of where it kind of comes from. I think that, and you know, sometimes you just want more out of life and, and you, you want to start looking at your legacy and what you contribute to the world. And I decided the path I was going down wasn't going to allow me to fulfill that. Awesome. Well, awesome. I know that the going out and making a leap, you know, can be a lot because I've been I've been there where you just are like, hey, we're doing this and I'll just take the car. I'll take all the cards as they fall. And you just kind of jump, jump off the back of the plane and say, let's get it. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, it, dude, it's it's really I've had to like break the old version of myself to become the new version of myself with some of this. And it, there's time there's days where it's really hard. Um, really hard. And then there's days where it's amazing. So it's just like, keep building and building and stacking. And then 
the amazing days outweigh the, the tough days. Yeah, I think the hardest thing, so I'd read a, I'm not really a video gamer, but I listen, I was reading this book by Sid Meier, who's the founder of Civilization. And in the book, he talks about pretty much all the significant events that happened in his life. He didn't really realize any of the significance is why they were, when they were occurring. Mm-hmm. And I also heard what he was trying to say is like, you know, the, the problem with thinking about like really monumental events in your life, like we're pretty fascinated with monumental events is that they create like, a, I think he called it a letdown situation is where you, it's hard to understand the significance of events as they're occurring. Like you just, right. it's, you're in the middle of it. And so what he was trying to say was like, Hey, you just got to live the day for what it is. And you got to let those things happen and occur and um, I think another quote that I heard is by uh, Leo Burnett. And I've read this in one of his books and I can't ever seem to find the quote, but he gave a speech and the speech basically said that everything significant in my life was full of yelling and screaming. At the time, it was awful, right? Like that, like any, everything he ever accomplished that was of any significance that he ever got a award for was full of anguish and yelling and screaming. <laughs> so Ryan, this was awesome, man. How to, how to do? You did great, man. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate having me on the show. And uh, yeah, man. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. As always, if you want more information on the podcast, go to monsterconnect.com forward slash podcast. You can get last season's, uh, last year's episodes. You can get all the new episodes for this year. And as always, remember, don't let what you can't do interfere with what you can. Until next time.